Welcome to our combined Bible study in the book of Romans and our meeting with Linda Liu and her husband, Chen Kong. This is a re-recording. I failed to record the Bible study part, but later on you'll hear Linda Liu and her husband give us a report. The report was, in fact, recorded. In our study of the Romans, we're in chapter 14, and our focus today will be verses 10 through 12. Let me give you a little bit of the uh, context of the passage before we get into some of the details. Keep reminding you that uh, this was written to believers, not to a general audience, but people from the city of Rome, where there were many churches, composed of both Jew and Gentile. So we have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. You've seen the chart before, provision of God's righteousness. That's the heart of the the book, first eight chapters, where God provides his very own righteousness for those that are not only undeserving, but are condemned, lost, separated from him. Then in chapters 9 through 11, Because of the special issue of the nation of Israel in the first century, Paul vindicates God's righteousness, God's righteousness being the major theme of the book. But in the first century, now that Christ has died and rose from the dead, and his work and ministry extends to Gentiles, this would raise a question in the first century concerning the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. What about them? They are the ones that God has made promises, predictions, entered into covenant with. They are the children of God. And now we have Gentiles who were outside and were not part of what God was doing other than as proselytes that would become part of the nation of Israel. So what is God doing? And what about the nation of Israel? Have they lost all of the inheritance? Have they lost the promises that God had made with them? Has the church replaced Israel? Well, that is a false doctrine replacement theology. God will, in fact, fulfill everything he has promised to the nation of Israel. And chapters 9 through 11 indicate that eventually, particularly in chapter 11, all of Israel will be saved. So God will be faithful and complete everything that he began with the nation of Israel. But in the meantime, we have what we call the church age, where God has extended his work beyond the nation of Israel to all peoples from any nation all over the world. So the righteousness is vindicated. And those are the doctrinal sections of the book of Romans. And uh, we have a division of application beginning in chapter 12 through the middle of chapter 15 we can divide it into four parts and what Paul seems to be doing in these four parts is showing how Christianity can be visualized worked out in these four different areas first in relationship to God first two verses we are to be a living sacrifice then beginning in verse 3 through 21 What does Christianity look like in terms of the church? And then uh, thirdly, Christianity within society or the principles of the book of Romans worked out 
what do those principles look like in the church, in society? And now we're in this fourth applicational portion, Christian liberty. And I've said several times that if there was one issue in the Church of Rome, this probably was the main issue that Paul is addressing. There would have been a conflict between believers that understood their freedom in Christ and other believers that perhaps had not grown to understand that same freedom, even though they had the same freedom, they didn't quite understand it. And the reason is we come from a variety of different backgrounds, and those backgrounds sometimes influence the ongoing Christian life in all of us. So we need to recognize some of the basic principles of Christian liberty in order to fully enjoy what Christ has provided. But in the meantime, we have conflicts with one another if we're not accepting and realizing that people are at different stages and different places in their Christian growth. Now, we're not dealing with absolutes. We've been mentioning that as well. The Bible is crystal clear in that there are definitely things that are right and things that are wrong and things that are prohibited and things that we are not to participate in. But there are also these not-so-clear areas and particularly related to that background from which we come from. There, There's a little more flexibility there, but as a result of that, sometimes we impose our own convictions upon others not recognizing that uh, they're not in the same place as where we are. So that's what this chapter, chapter 14, is all about. continues in chapter 15, so it's kind of a long section. We have the first 12 verses where the encouragement is to primarily to accept one another right where they're at. I title it in my outline, The Reception of Different convictions, using R as my alliteration here, and I divide it into two major parts. The first verse is primarily an exhortation to receive one another. In fact, the verse begins with the concept of acceptance. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So that's the issue. The strong, or the way he describes the strong, are those that have a good understanding of Christian liberty, but they are not to impose their convictions and the things that they are free to do upon those that don't have that same conviction because of their background. We've seen that the issue in the first century primarily dealt with Jews who came from a more legalistic background and because of their observance of the Sabbath, for example, and days and the prohibition of certain foods. They had a hard time eating the foods that were prohibited. It uh, affected their conscience because they didn't have the full understanding of they were now free and that Christ had declared all foods clean. In other words, they were no longer prohibited. Even though in the Old Testament, In the law, those foods were prohibited, but now we're in a new and a different era. And similarly with with days. So there was a need for acceptance. So I title verse 1, the reception of brothers. Then the second part of this first paragraph, 1 through 12, 
Paul gives at least four reasons why we are to receive one another. And I use that as the outline of the passage. So first of all, we have verses two and three. The first reason is God has accepted them and they are equally saved, whether they are weak in faith or whether they are strong. So the acceptance of God himself Paul argues and gives that reason for us to accept one another. Who are we to reject those that God has accepted? Then in verse 4, he gives the second reason. And verse 4 seems to be addressed particularly to the weak and uh, their judging of fellow brothers who are perhaps free to participate or to eat certain things even though they feel like they are wrong or at least for them are prohibited from their background. So the reason that they are to receive the the strong or anyone really is that God sustains them. In other words, God is going to maintain their Christian walk. And in fact, if they are doing certain things that are not right, then God will convict. God will, in fact, discipline if need be. God will deal with them. And they stand or fall in their relationship to God. So that's the essence of verse 4. Then the third reason, he outlines the sovereignty of the Lord or the Lordship. And he uses an analogy in verses 5 through 9, essentially. The analogy is in the first century, there were masters and slaves. And each master would be the Lord of a certain number of slaves And the word that's used there is a household slave, but there might have been others as well. But the imagery is that anyone outside of that unit would not reprimand or would not, in fact, interfere with the dealings of the master with his servants. And the analogy goes into the Christian walk. All of us are servants, you might say, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he is the master over us. We are not to be masters over one another. So that relationship of the Lord or the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the emphasis of 5 through 9. And uh, today we want to focus in a little bit of a time here on the last few verses, 10 through 11, which discusses the fourth reason why we are not to judge one another or to look down upon others and, in fact, are to receive or accept one another. And that reason is because of the judgment seat of Christ. So with that uh, review of what we've covered so far, let's get into chapter 14, verse 10. And it begins with a very emphatic little phrase, but you, it's both emphatic in the Greek text and also even in the English text. And it almost seems like he's going back to verse 3, where he's addressing both of them and exhorting both the weak and the strong believer. Those are Paul's terms. Back in verse 3, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. I've already mentioned the receiving or the accepting by God himself. 
But now in verse 10, he seems to reverse the ones addressed in verse 3, but he's addressing the same two groups, you might say. But you, why do you judge your brother? Now, the one that tended to judge the brother was the weak, because he saw the stronger believer, perhaps eating meats that the weaker believer thought perhaps was offered to idols, and he was fearful that perhaps the strong was falling into sin, and he's judging him, and perhaps even condemning him. Then the second part of the verse, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Now that seems to be addressed mainly to the strong believer who, in his freedom, doesn't want to be bothered, or doesn't want to, in fact, uh, go back and wants to disregard the weak believer and perhaps view him with some contempt and look down upon him. So verse 10 seems to go back to verse 3 and addresses both of them. And now we have the reason at the latter part of verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So we need to take a look at what is this judgment seat? It seems to be something very important and, in fact, all-inclusive. It says, we will all stand before the judgment seat. Now, the we there, I think, not only in the context, but uh, from many other passages that are related to this concept of this judgment seat, whatever it is, is limited in that I think it only involves the church or the believers that uh, are believers in the church age. So let me give you a little background on judgment in general, and then we'll look specifically at what is this judgment seat of Christ. Now, the phrase in the English can be a little confusing, and it's hard to even come up with a different phrase for what what it represents but uh, we need to explain it because you could become confused and think that in some way judgment is more prominent than what this whole thing, this whole concept of the judgment seat is all about. So let's talk a little bit about judgment. And before we do that, let me just mention that God has been dealing throughout world history with mankind and man's sin. When sin entered... In Genesis chapter 3, with the fall of man, ever since then, God has been dealing with sin. God began dealing with sin with Adam and Eve. In fact, they experienced the very first judgment. In the context of that judgment, God also made a very long-range promise in Genesis 3.15 that through the seed of the woman would come a descendant, a descendant of the woman, would in fact, in a final way, would deal with the problem of evil and man's sin. He would resolve it. Now, it's not totally clear in Genesis 3.15, but from the rest of the Bible, we can see the outworking of it. And you could even summarize all of world history as a record of God dealing with sin. So, God dealing with sin involves judgment. And you can view judgment as God separating out that that he loves and that that he has saved from that that destroys. That's judgment. And in the Old Testament, we have many, many examples of God intervening in history to deal with sin. One of them is the Genesis flood. 
where God not only judged the corruption of the entire culture of that age, but also intervened to save one family, the family of Noah. And that's just the striking example, but all of the other examples in the Old Testament, of which there are many, are God dealing with sin. Of course, the ultimate judgment was the judgment that took place on the cross, where Jesus bore the sins of the world. And on the cross, he essentially dealt with sin in a final way. Now, it's going to take all of world history to complete that process that began in Genesis 3. And in the New Testament and other places, we have prediction of future judgments that uh, God will deal with mankind, that, that demonstrate God's intervention with mankind. And uh, some of them, we can even put on a timeline here. I don't have them specifically called out, but I'll use this timeline to kind of illustrate some future judgments. We know very clearly that even the period of tribulation, which there's much detail, both Old Testament and New Testament, that's in the future. And that detail indicates that that period of time is a period of judgment, seven-year period of judgment. We also know from the New Testament that uh, Christ came and will return, and upon his return, there'll be a series of judgments that will be also imposed. So throughout world history, we have God intervening in judgment. And then there'll be a final judgment. At the, the last event of world history, the great white throne is the final judgment. Now, one of these judgments that are described that is also future is this one that we have in Romans 14.10, the judgment seat of God. So it's distinct from the others and it's different. So we need to clarify what it involves. Now, the idea of judgment, sometimes people get a little confused in terms of what is involved in it. Some faulty views that some have come up with, including even theologians. It has nothing to do with whether a person gets to heaven or goes to hell. So it does not determine whether one goes to heaven or hell. In fact, there's no St. Peter at the gate that lets people in. Secondly, it has nothing to do with God punishing Christians for sin after salvation. Some uh, theologians hold to that idea. Or it has nothing to do with God judging unconfessed sin. In other words, if you don't confess all your sin, then there's a judgment that you will face when you stand before him. In fact, we could even say that it has nothing to do with sin at all because all of sin was paid for on the cross By the Lord Jesus Christ, he bore the full judgment of all of mankind so that man has an opportunity to be able to have a relationship with God. So in the past, Jesus Christ died and paid in full all judgment that believers certainly deserve. But now by accepting him, we have full forgiveness. So it has nothing to do with that past sin or even with present sin. We are not judged after we receive the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and because of the old nature, continue to sin. But God does deal with us. And there's several passages, one of them Hebrews chapter 12, that tells us that God can intervene and, in fact, bring what we might better describe as discipline rather than judgment. And the picture in Romans 12 is God as father will intervene amongst his children just as a uh, literal father would and should discipline his children in order to train them and to develop them and to correct them. So also the father will do the same with those of us that have trusted in him. Now, just one passage that uh, indicates to us, and there are several others that we could use, but John 5:24, Jesus himself speaking, indicating that payment was in full. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In other words, the moment that we trust in him, the moment we believe in him, we receive eternal life. And then the last part will not be condemned. So there's no judgment. There's no place where we will come and become and and be condemned. And then the last part of the verse, he has crossed over from death to life. So the Christian does not face a future judgment So what's involved with this judgment seat of Christ? Well, if there's a past where Christ has paid in full and God deals with sin in the Christian in the present through discipline, then uh, this judgment seat must deal with something in the future. And the focus is actually more of a positive focus rather than a negative judgmental focus. And it deals with rewards. And let's take a look at, first of all, the word that is used for judgment seat and then focus on the concept of rewards. But there's also the possibility of loss. And there's a couple of passages we can look at that deal with that. So that's the future judgment, if you will, that the Christian faces, described as the judgment seat of Christ. Now, in Corinth... There is, in fact, such a place that is described as a bema, and that's the Greek word that we have here in the biblical text. It's bema. And this little structure that archaeologists have uncovered in the ancient city dates back to the first century, and this is a bema. So what is this? It's a physical location or physical place, an object, And before we look at that, last week, last time we met, Maddie uh, reminded me that we, in fact, those of us that went on the trip in 2019 to Israel, and in that case also to Greece, we actually visited Corinth. So here's our group in front of the Bema. So what is this Bema? And what is the one that is in view in the slide there? It was the place where a judge on the top of the Bema would have a seat where he would pass judgment. And this was a civil judgment in the first century where if crimes were committed or complaints were were brought before a judge, the judge would sit in judgment. And in Acts 25, 6 and also in 10, we have an example of 
this very thing. So the passage, in the context of the passage, Festus, a Roman leader, uh, bringing Paul before judgment, the verse goes on and says, and after he had spent more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, now the he there is Festus, and on the next day he took his seat on the Bema. Now, New American Standard translates it tribunal, but it was a place of judgment. And then the last part of the verse, and ordered Paul to be brought. So Paul is going to stand trial before the Bema, before Festus. Now, skip down to verse 10, where Paul, after a little discussion between 6 and 10, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's Bema. In other words, this is... With the full authority of Caesar himself, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, is the way the New American Standard translates it. It translates the word bema. Where I ought to be tried, Paul says, I have done no wrong, so there's his defense, no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. So he's going to present a case, a legal case, before the bema. Now, it was also used... In fact, this very same one in the photograph could have been used not only for deciding legal issues, but in Acts 12.21, it could also be used as a place where an oration or a speech or a public address could be offered. And the example in Acts 12.21, on the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the, New American Standard translates, Bema, on the rostrum, and began delivering an address to them. So something of a platform or a public message or public deliverance could be made. That's the Bema. Now, also in the first century, we don't have a New Testament example of it, but there was also a platform Related to the Olympic Games, of which in Corinth there would have been a stadium where on the designated years there would be Olympic Games. And the winner would be placed on the platform and given his award and honored on that platform. That was also called a Bema. So that's the background, that's the imagery, you might say, of the Bema of the New Testament. And what is in view in the passages that refer to this judgment seat of Christ, this Bema is used in a more uh, spiritual sense, in a future sense, of standing before the ultimate judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was not for judgment in terms of judgment of sin, So the first image or the first usage would apply to the Bema here, but it would also include the third one, the platform for reward, because when an individual will stand in the future before the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's a genuine believer, he has passed from death to life, as John 5.24 tells us, and what will be judged is the life of the believer after he is trusted in Christ, and Christ has promised rewards for faithfulness. But for unfaithfulness, there's also the possibility of losing something. 
and it's not clear exactly what, but uh, we can probably come to some conclusions. So that's the Bema, and that's the imagery and the background to it. So let me give you a few details, and if we had more time, we could look at passages that seem to indicate all of these aspects that uh, describe the Bema. We know, for example, that Christ in the upper room told the disciples that he must depart. Now he's preparing them for his death, but uh, he will also return in John 14, but he will go to prepare a place for the believers. And it appears that the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that describes the rapture of the church, the rapture is in the heavenlies. And more than likely, I showed you that timeline, the Bema, or the judgment seat, occurs probably shortly or simultaneous with the rapture. We will stand before him. Now, there's not a passage that indicates that, but that seems to be the more logical place that uh, we can conclude from all of the passages that describe it. And by the way, there are several passages that uh, are related to this judgment seat, and the word is used in only a few of them. Romans 14.10 and another very clear passage, 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we'll look at in a moment. So the place is in the heavenlies, probably after we go to be with the Lord after the rapture. So the timing would be probably immediately after the rapture. And since all judgment has been delivered over to the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the one who will bring judgment. Now, interestingly, in Romans, and if you remember, we've been in our past study seeing that Paul in the book of Romans seems to switch back and forth with terms that relate relate to God the Father. And the term that he uses to describe Jesus is the Lord. And in fact, he even specifies specifically Christ himself. So this passage refers to Christ, but Paul seems to go back and forth. And in this passage, it's the judgment seat of God with Jesus Christ in view. So this is another one of those passages that I indicated last time where the deity of Christ possibly is in view. But elsewhere, we will see that Christ is the judge. For example, in that one passage, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Similar to the one we're in, we must all appear before the Bema, but it's translated judgment seat. But in that context, the Bema of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there is an accounting, you might say, not a judgment for sin, that's paid in full, But there is an accounting for how we live our life after we have trusted in Jesus Christ. And if you understand the justice of God, that's justice. That's that's only right. There should be a distinction between those that are faithful to the Lord and those that perhaps are not as faithful. And the Lord Jesus Christ has set it up such that he has promised to us reward Now, this is above and beyond eternal life, above and beyond forgiveness of sin, above and beyond salvation. So that's what the Bema is all about. 
So the place is in the heavenlies. The time is after the rapture when we meet the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the judge. And if you study all of the contexts related to the Bema and related to the concept of reward, it deals with believers or the believers of the church age. So we could summarize it as the church. Now, this is the true church composed of only those that have trusted in Jesus Christ. Those are the subjects of the Bema. And we need to stress, and some of the passages stress the concept of the basis of this evaluation or review. The basis is on the basis of grace. Everything in the Christian walk is on the basis of grace. Even the beginning, we are saved by grace and grace alone. We have no claim on God We uh, do not earn anything before God. We could not. We could not do enough to earn God's goodness. So it must be on the basis of grace. And also, these rewards, it's not that we are earning them. God is just giving them, I think, more as motivation to encourage. But in his goodness, he wants to grant good gifts And we can view these rewards as gracious gifts that God has provided for us. And he's given us a lot of detail concerning something about the future rewards. So there's lots of passages that we could look at. But for the sake of time, let's look at only a few of them. And one of the central passages is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So let's take a look at it and start reading in verse 8. The context, Paul is addressing the believers, the church at Corinth. So the very church where the archaeologists have uncovered this Bema. And Paul uses the Bema in uh, 2 Corinthians, but uh, not so clearly here. But they would have been familiar with the Bema. And he's describing what goes on there beginning in verse 8. And he begins with salvation. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward. Now those that share the gospel are going to receive a reward according to his own labor. That's the context. So he even introduces this passage with the idea of reward. And then verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. So now he's going to use an an analogy. These workers are evangelists, are believers that are sharing the gospel, and they are building a building. And this building, as any building, would have different components. So he's going to use an image or an analogy from engineering and construction here. And he's going to start with the foundation in verse 10. And notice the emphasis on grace, according to the grace of God, which was given to me. So even the ministry is a ministry that God has given on the basis of grace. This is Paul as a wise master builder. So he's a construction worker, master builder. I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. That's the imagery of a structure. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. In other words, you can come up with different kinds of structures, good or bad, sound or not so sound. 
depending on what you use in terms of construction materials and the technique that you use to build. Then verse 11 elaborates, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. In other words, in the image, the foundation of a relationship with Jesus Christ, in other words, the whole experience of salvation. Then verse 12, now if any man builds, now we're building on that foundation, anyone builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So now we have different building materials, and there's two classifications that we can see or notice here. One, very precious ones, very durable, stable ones, and others not so. Wood, combustible, hay, very easily blown away and destroyed easily with fire, straw similarly. So a contrast of two different types of building materials. Then verse 13, each man's work, and remember the analogy, ministry, building the church essentially in terms of the spiritual development of people, so broadly ministry here, each man's ministry, you could say, or each man's work will become evident for the day will show it. Now, he doesn't refer to the judgment seat of Christ, but he's talking of a particular day where an accounting will be made because it is to be revealed with fire. In other words, this structure is going to put through the test and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So what we do in terms of our Christian walk, and if we are faithfully ministering in what God has given us in terms of spiritual gift, that is going to come before the judge, before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to mean we're going to lose salvation. It doesn't mean that it's if we are unfaithful, that our sin of unfaithfulness is judged. But we do, as the text is going to go on, if any man's work which he has built upon it remains. In other words, if it's from building materials that are permanent, stable, he shall receive a reward. Now, this is a reward above and beyond that foundation of salvation. And God has graciously promised that we have reward awaiting on the basis of faithfulness. But, Here's one of the passages, if any man's work is burnt up, in other words, built on hay, wood, straw, is burnt up, he shall suffer loss. So there is a loss. Something will be lost. But, notice the last part, but he himself shall be saved. So no losing of salvation doesn't impact salvation at all. Yet, so as through fire. So there's going to be a cleansing or a purification, you might say. A removal of all of that that is useless and has no place in uh, the eternal state of the Father. But the point being is we will stand accountable before a holy God and have to give an account. There is a future time of evaluation. It's called the Bema, Bema of Christ in this context, the Bema of God where, in fact, how we have lived the Christian walk, whether faithful or unfaithful, and in that evaluation, we will receive reward, gracious rewards for all that we have done in the area of faithfulness and the possibility of loss.
So this is the central passage, 1 Corinthians 3. You could start even earlier, but at least verse 8 through verse 15. Now there's other passages. I've got some on the slides here. I'll let you jot them down for your notes. But the uh, uh, Matthew passage, Jesus himself talks about reward as well. Paul in Ephesians 6, 8. And other passages where it speaks of crowns being given, there are several of them. One of the central passages, 2 Timothy 4, 8, uh, focuses on service. But there's others that are mentioned. For example, 1 Corinthians 9.25 describes an imperishable crown. And again, it's at the Bema. These all relate to the Bema and what we've just discussed here. Interestingly, in Philippians 4.1 and also 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says that uh, the believers that have trusted in Christ as a result of his ministry, they are his crown. So any believers that have come into faith of Christ as a result of your ministry, they will be your crown in the future, at least based on what Paul seems to indicate in terms of his ministry. So the believers at Philippi and at Thessalonica, Paul considers them his crown. Revelation 2.10, crowns are promised for persevering, and particularly through trouble, through tribulation. So those that are persecuted will receive a crown. And leaders, if they're faithful in their ministry, 1 Peter 5.4, for shepherding, that's the specific context there, but I think it would extend to other ministries of leaders as well. And interesting, in Revelation 4.10, we have a heavenly scene, and in that heavenly scene, probably pictures the church or believers, doesn't use the word, but uh, that's the probably the people that are involved in that Uh, vision of John in Revelation 4.10. And interestingly, it makes mention that those believers are casting their crowns back before God the Father. And I think they're recognizing the grace involved and the thanksgiving for the granting of these crowns. And the whole concept of inheritance in Scripture couple of passages, Colossians 3.24, I'll read it in a moment, 1 Peter 1.4, and several other passages where it refers to an inheritance. Using the analogy of a physical inheritance, there's also a spiritual inheritance. And that also is contingent on faithfulness, how we live the Christian walk. And just one passage, Colossians 3, 23 through 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So notice doing your work, that's ministry, that's involvement, that's faithfulness. And then verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. There's the concept of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And similarly, there are several other passages along that line. We also have an interesting passage in uh, Revelation 3.20 that gives us more specifics concerning what that reward may be. Let me read that passage to you, and that's a good place to conclude our study today. In Revelation 3.21, addressed to the believers at Laodicea, 
He's encouraging them. He's motivating them, even though there's some unfaithfulness that he rebukes. But in the end of the passage, verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. That's the millennial throne. So in the millennial kingdom, there will be rewards. To sit down on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So that's one passage that gives us a little picture of at least one way that these rewards may manifest themselves as reigning with him. We will be a part of his administration during the thousand year reign on earth that completes world history. In Revelation 22:12, this is the conclusion of the book. Jesus speaking, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So that's the Bema, and it is a future evaluation, if you want to call it a judgment, or a time where we will be evaluated on the basis of how we live the Christian walk. So it's important how we live today because there's future reward. And sadly, for those that are not faithful, there is the possibility of loss. But it's a glorious thing to think that uh, we have so many abundant gifts that the Lord has given and promises of even things in the future. May we be motivated to live faithfully for our Lord. So this is what it was like around Glenn's house back in the day. And uh, I wanted to share this with you because today, you know, we have, uh, we have Linda with us, of course. And, uh, and we all know that she earned her Ph.D., uh, major Old Testament, right? And uh, while we were at the, uh, today we went to a, a Chinese church. And it turns out that there's a couple that works in this Chinese church up in the Northeast Heights on uh, uh, Holbrook. Or what, what is it? Holbrook, right? You were there. Weren't you guys there? No? Holbrook. Yeah. Anyway, um, and there's a couple that uh, knew Glenn well up there. And so today we, we had some discussion up there. And so what you have here is, is you have uh, Glenn's legacy and uh, Linda is very happy to accept that uh, that title, aren't you? Yeah. So, anyway, I just wanted to introduce her this way, and it's wonderful to have her back here. But I hope some of these uh, pictures bring back some memories that uh, are meaningful to the, the group in here. Okay, it's all yours. Howdy. Howdy. Carry on taxing Alexia as well. So. <laughs> Yeah, Glenn really convinced, uh, convinced me to drink my very first soft drink in my life, Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and so because I'm not a soft drink drinker, you know, I don't drink any soda, basically. But if I do want to drink soda, Dr. Pepper is my priority. No other thing. So, and also he convinced me for a real true Texan way to drink it. It's hot Dr. Pepper with lime. Oh my. <laughs> People think it's gross, but it's really good, actually. <laughs> anyway, good. Because, anyways, so 
then because I think I tried once, like myself, when I was in Dallas, because this was icy day. Day, as I thought, okay, probably I need something hot, and、um, you know, so I. Was thinking about Dr Pepper, so I did that. So people was like, "Are you crazy?" But I think so. But、I、carry on that that as well. So of course, blueberry ice cream as well. So, but um, so it's um sometimes I do、uh, eat blueberry ice cream. But anyways, so that's kind of like um the Texan side of the legacy in me. So Texas wine and blueberry always. So,、um, anyways, so I think I'm really glad to be here and really appreciate your support through all these years. So,、um, I you know, like like James said, like I just finished my PhD, so I, like finish my learning process、uh, in knowledge. But as I just want to like go back to a little bit that and sharing about my lang-、uh, language learning path and.、Um, Of course, like this is a glorifying God process. So、um, I, I think I assume like everybody here know Glenn, right? Right. So,、um, so I just want to share a little bit about Glenn's uh, vision. Um, um, so I mean, he when he went to China in 2001, when I was still a teenager. How crazy is that? Um, but um, he he had a vision, and he want to train a few students who is gifted, committed, and diligent to you know hardworking people. So that's his vision. Because he always, I I think you you may already know, like he always drink a、uh, draw a triangle. You know, here's the believers, the kinds of then you know pastors, all that. And then on top of that, you know, it's like a A few students who know the biblical languages and you know to write language tools and reference books and then doing some exegetical tools, all that stuff. So that's his, you know, goal. He want to train a few people that he doesn't.、Uh, he always said, I don't mind like how many, so, like if it's one or five or fifty or five hundred, it doesn't matter. It's、so, like he want to train a few people. That who know biblical languages well, then so then can serve the Chinese church that way. So I、um, I was blessed to study under him in 2001 when he was there to for three days of biblical language introduction. So he introduced、uh, Greek alphabets and Hebrew alphabets in three days.、Uh, so that that and also he did his the vocabulary and.、Uh, Just like build up some interest in us, so at that moment I I kind of feel like I really 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 want to study biblical languages, and、uh, but I didn't I was too shy to talk with him, so but I don't know whether he noticed me or not because it just you know we have thirty times like students there,、um, but I was praying that said Lord if you want me to study、um, biblical languages and open the door for me please, so.、Um, Sorry, trying to hold my emotion. Um, okay. Uh, so then, 2003, and Glenn went back to China again to start a small group in Kunming, and、um, I was so sad that I was not in the first group because I was in a, a mission field, and the, my teacher did not want us to come back in the middle of the you know works there. So then ended up I was 
still in the field when he was teaching uh, the first small group uh, in Kunming. But then the next year, 2004, um, then I was uh, in Kunming, and then he came. So we started the intensive Greek um, course with him. So then since then, um, almost like every year, then he came to the, uh, China, then I was in the group either study or translating, interpreting, you know, cooking, washing, whatever. So I was in that group. So, so it's really fun to be around with him to study, um, uh, in, I mean, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, a little bit Aramaic with him as well. So, um, so he wants us uh, using the biblical languages to serve Chinese churches. That's, that's his goal because he wants to, um, you know, train a group of people to use this to serve church. So I was so blessed that to be part of this. And he wanted to bring more students over to the States, but ended up that I was the only one here in the States. So I was thinking that's what a privilege that I could come over to the States to study uh, in the school that he's so proud of, like, you know, in Dallas and Texas. Um, so um, then he wanted also to have people to write uh, language tools by Chinese, in Chinese, and for Chinese. So that's, that's his vision. And also, I mean, um, the, the second one, the third one became my vision and our book's vision. It's not just me and Gloria and Vera and John and so many other, you know, students who was in Glen School. So that's, we carry on his vision for Chinese church as well. So we want to like have this ready for the Chinese church. So this this is you know Glenn's vision for um, the Chinese church and for us. So um, that's with that then you know 2011 I went to DTS to study. And when I first came to um, the states, I went to Midland College. Um, uh, initially for English, then it happened that I tested out of the English class and then doing some normal uh, college level courses. And then for the summer, in Glenn's, you know, it's three months summer break. And Glenn said, it's just kind of like a waste of time, you know. Why not you apply for DTS Hebrew course? Because, you know, just got into the what the seminar looked like. So when I applied for DTS, and they said, we encourage you to apply our THM program. So I said, I told Glenn, said, why not? That's, you know, that's our goal. That's if you get into a DTS, that'd be fabulous. So, but I know, like, I did not get a high school degree. And I was, I had a um, so-called um, diploma. It's similar to equivalent to bachelor, but it's not really a formal degree. So, so that became a barrier, you know, to apply for DTS. But then, you know, he's always brave enough to try, right? So we did. And then this, and, and during that time, I got to know another, you know, two professors who also DTS grad. So they also wrote recommendation letters to DTS. So then I got accepted, just, you know, in a short time and then got there. So then I think at that time, I, I was like, okay, four years of THM. That's it. So, you know, then I was, like, um, doing that. So, but in the second year, I mean, all of a sudden, 
I mean, people who know me well or don't quite know me start talking about, are you going to do a PhD here? I was like, no, sorry. But it's sort of kind of like I was saying, that's, I never thought about a PhD. And so THIM is my goal. So after that, I go back to China and serve. So, um, but then they, more and more and more people start to talk about PhDs. So then I also uh, talked with Glenn. He said, you know, if you uh, want to do that, you know, that'd be great. So, but it's like see what the Lord, you know, lead up to because especially for financial, financially and all that. So then I think uh, in the third year, I start to pray hard about this option. So, Lord, if you want me to do a PhD, you know, then just, you know, you just let me know to lead the path. So it happened that I was in this program um 2015, um, but it's um, always a sad thing because um, everybody know what happened in 2015, huh? So um, the day, uh, two days before um, I got my result of my interest exam to the PhD program, that accident happened. Um, um, so um, I I was really sad that Glenn did not going to see that, but I, I know he, he must know, like, you know, before I did, so, <laughs> um, so then, uh, that's kind of like, I got into the program, uh, without him, so, in all these five and a half years of PhD, I have this picture, on top of my desk, uh, that's Glenn's first full marathon, back to 2008, in Boston. So he wrote something, uh, a little note, uh, in there, so I later framed this, uh, picture. So, um, so I had this picture on my desk, so whenever, um, I want to talk with him, so I just talk to this picture. Um, because it is so many moments that I, um, I need advice, I need encouragement, I need direction, and, uh, or just want to get away from study. Um, so I'm thinking of him, so I have that picture, so that's like, a, that's the, my very first impression of him have a big beard. So then after he shaved, I was like barely recognized him, so like, why? <laughs> that's so different, but um, so um, that's that's the picture that's on my desk. It's not the full picture, but I just want to see, um, check it, like a, it shows bigger. So, um, so that's still, this picture is still on my desk. So um, that's really um, encouragement to me as, um, you know, to press on whenever there's hardship or discouragement. So, you know, to press on to the finish line. So, you know, that's how the marathon runners doing. So we are, I'm also still in the path, you know, running toward the Lord thing. Um, so that's kind of like in five and a half years of my PhD studies at DTS. Then last December, I got to the end. Um, but, um, I was, um, so because when I first started the PhD program at DTS in back to 2015, I thought I'm going to finish this thing in four years. So... But Lord always have something else. So 
then um, I thought, you know, I'm going to finish my coursework in two years, then one semester for COP, comprehensive exams, then one half for dissertation, done. So when I finished my first year based on my schedule, then the second year, one of our um, a prof, Dr. Taylor, also, who was Glenn's Greek professor back to the 60s in Bob Jones University. So he was on spectacle. I was like, what? Um, so there were uh, two courses I had to take with him to finish my program, my first coursework. So he was on spectacle, so I could not do the course. So that's really postponed my course schedule. I said, not, you know, not on your schedule, mine. So then that's, uh, but I was so thankful that when he came back to the, from this one year sabbatical, he was offering the two courses in one semester. So usually it's one in each semester, but I was able to finish my coursework in two and a half. That I finished my COP pretty fast in three months, uh, but that's when I start my dissertation. Then, start really start the tribulation for that. So, um, because it's like slow process, you know, it's so many of uh, things that's out of my control. Because what we, all you can do is write. Then, when you submit to your professor, wait. So, then it took a much longer than I expected. So, but then last December, I do know. So like I said, graduation is a miracle. It is a miracle. Because so during the Thanksgiving weekend last year, I was sitting there and said, Lord, there's no way for me to graduate this December. Because they are already uh, no end of November, and we are in a break. And um, I was like, I don't think I can finish this. If you think it's another semester, I'll go for it. And it's our, you know... But um, as I know, like I, I praise the Lord. Lord, you have your time is the best. So I'm, I fully submit to your schedule, not mine. So then after that, then I, when I called my uh, dissertation advisor, and he said we had a meeting, all three of us, like I have three readers. So then the second reader, who was the uh, department chair for the Old Testament studies at DPS. And he, he told the two other readers, the reader said, you know, why not we push ourselves and let her graduate? Because she's so close and so there's no reason to stay for another semester. So I really appreciate him. Then, then they start to work together to, you know, stay up late, you know, read my dissertation and all that. So then the week after the break, I did my defense. So then two weeks later, I graduated. So, I mean, that's really amazing that how God worked because I thought I, there's no way for me to, uh, you know, finish this thing in, uh, last December. But um, God worked out that so I was able to graduate last December. Here we go. In this May, I attended my ser- graduation ceremony. That's our sixth president, Dr. Yabra. So um, I um, walked uh, last May. So um, I think, you know, God worked out to the schedule that I was able to finish my PhD in five and a half years, which is one and a half years more than I expected. <laughs> but he, he knew what the best. 
So um, I really appreciate that whole process. So I think more like a, like I want to cur- um, share about our current my current status. Um, I think in the newsletter I mentioned about fin- uh, I was translating a <coughs> Hebrew textbook for my um, dissertation advisor. So I finished the translating and adapting. Uh, the reason I said the here is adapting because um, Glenn always wants to have a Hebrew grammar in Chinese for Chinese. So I was not the author to write this textbook, but we worked together with my supervisor, uh, advisor, to adapt his book for Chinese audience. So we took out all those English examples, put the Chinese in it. So it's a, it is translation, but it have lots of adaptions there. So there's no English at all in that textbook. It's for Chinese. It's in Chinese. So um, so we did that. This Hebrew grammar is um, is different from the original English because we took out the English stuff. And uh, so this fall, I will use this textbook to teach Chinese students at Dallas Theological Seminary. So all the stu- we have seven students right now registered, and they are from mainland China. Wow. So, um, so then I know like for the Chinese DTS Chinese program, the Greek professor use English textbook for the Chinese students. I'm not going to use an English textbook for my Chinese students. So, because I want to carry on that legacy, it's for Chinese. So, then this textbook is finished, the workbook um, and the study sheets, and also the website, because we use the website to teach as well. So, um, then the student will be required to write their assignments in Chinese as well, not English. So, it's in Chinese as well, because... Um, you know, you, if you want to serve the Chinese audience, you have to think from Chinese perspective rather than English perspective. So, so that's why I kind of like, you know, they have to write their assignments in Chinese so they can serve their future audience well because they understand this language from their native language. So also, that's why I, when I came to the States, I want to study Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic well, so I can serve Chinese church, um, carry on, you know, Glenn's vision. So, because I had some students back to China, they said, I cannot study Greek and Hebrew. I said, why? Because he, they said, because my English is awful. <laughs> I said, no, you don't need an English to study Greek and Hebrew. You can understand the language from Chinese you know, the language you already know that you spoke for since you were born, you know. Or, so, that's why, like, we want a, a textbook that's, you know, talk about Hebrew uh, purely from a Chinese perspective. Mm-hmm. So, that's this textbook for. So, I think, so that's really um, something that uh, I have been doing since January. So, now we finish this thing and we'll print soon and we'll be used in the fall. So, um, and also, I am also translating Bible commentaries for the BibleSense.com. I think I updated, I finished uh, uh, Ecclesiastes, 
and now I'm on in a twenty a chapter twenty five in for access. Hmm. So um, you know, then hopefully we'll finish access sometime next next month. So like you know, that's uh, another thing. And doing this, this is more like uh, aimed for the Chinese audience in North America, maybe in mainland China eventually, because I don't know whether they can log in this website or not, too, because some, lots of websites are already blocked in China. So, but it, this will be a tool for them, um, I mean, uh, Chinese audience in North America. And uh, as I mentioned, I'll be teaching first year Hebrew at Dallas Theological Seminary for Chinese program in the fall, because that um, I'm doing that uh, while I'm waiting for my husband to finish his stuff. Otherwise, we are already back to China by then, but he's still in school. So I just want to mention a little bit about the future options for me and for my husband. So uh, I think before I talk about more of that, I would invite my husband to come up to talk, share about his uh, his recent plans, then after that, I will um, talk more about the options. Hi, hello, everyone. Okay. Uh, you say howdy. Yeah, howdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, howdy, we are from. <laughs> okay, I wanted to spend uh, a few minutes to share my situation and in our future. Okay. Um, yeah, after I come, after I came to America, yeah, I was served. Yeah, I was served a, a family church for more than four years. Yeah, family church is called uh, underground church. Yeah, uh, during I was serving my mother church, I found uh, many of the Christians uh, wanted to uh, want to understand understand the Bible, but. But because most of the leaders don't get a good biblical education, so sometimes they cannot preach in Bible very well. Yeah. So I wanted, so I wanted to get a, a higher biblical education, but I never thought I will go, I will come stays and study English. <laughs> And I never thought studying English is so hard for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So after I got married, after I got married, yeah, I moved in here with Linda. But for now, I have I have finished my MACS program at DTS Chinese program. But for now, I'm studying English. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes. Uh, doing, I am studying English. Yeah, I, sometimes I feel so disappointed. Yeah, because, uh, okay. Yeah, it's not easy for me. But I know, but I know God is good. God is always good. God, God knows, yeah, which way is good for me and us. Okay. Uh, okay, doing, uh, doing, I'm studying English. I more understand yeah, God's love and the Bible. Yeah, okay. You know, yeah, Jesus came to our world as a human. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, because 
and know study yes studying study English is not easy for me. All culture and another thing. Yeah, another yeah, it helps me to more understand Holy Bible. Yeah, we know yeah God yeah God wants everyone know His words, but He choose but He choose people's language to record His words. Yeah, and and He gives us Holy Spirit help to help to uh, help us to understand His words. Yeah, this is amazing. Okay, uh, in a few in a few months. Uh, I took a TOEFL exam, but I didn't pass. Uh, in August 21st, I will take it again, if God will. If God will, I think I will pass it. If not, yeah, I know yeah, God will open another road and make us more clear because we know God is good. God is uh, Always good. Thank you. So, um, yeah, God is good. God is always good. So, um, yeah, because um, the reason I stayed uh, after the graduation is because my husband is still in school and he wants to pursue further education. Because I think last time when we were here in Albuquerque, he shared about his vision. Because he has such a hard for theological education in China as well. So, but the the Master of Arts in Christian Studies um, is not sufficient to serve the church in China in theological education. So that's why he, I mean, he worked so hard and pressed himself so hard in the English study process because he wants to pursue more education so he can serve the church in China in a better way. So, and now we are praying and um, asking the Lord for direction um, for us in the next two or three years. So I said, like, oh, there's two options, two options so far, but we don't know which one God leads us to. So the option A, like, stay in the States for another three, two or three years for my husband to finish his program. So, um, uh, and while I was um, waiting for him, I will be teaching first year and second year Hebrew at the Dallas Theological Seminary. It was an open door for me because I never thought about I would be teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary because there's just like, as a new grad, even before I graduated, they already start to talk about the options because I'm still waiting for Chen Guang to finish his. And my supervisor and the Chinese program director was working together and trying to get me into uh, to, uh, uh, work as an adjunct professor at DTS. So, um, so that's kind of like uh, out of my radar imagination, you know. I never thought I would do that. But um, God opened that door, so I started my OPT, and they, um, you know, translate and adapted this textbook, and which I'm going to use to teach the Chinese students at Dallas Theological Seminary. So, um, so that's kind of like uh, something um, we would do if we stay here. 
and uh, also uh, in the in next year, uh, maybe starting in the fall, uh, I'll be uh, writing a chapter or two uh, for um, the Old Testament Jairus book, which is uh, would be a second year Hebrew grammar book uh, for the Eng- English audience as well as for Chinese audience. Uh, because uh, my dissertation is on the prophetic literature. So we will have a group of students work with my uh, dissertation advisor um, to write this book in the, for the English audience, and I'll, I will be translated and adapted for the Chinese audience as well. But um, for the prophetic literature, uh, which will be part of my dissertation. So... Um, that's kind of like another thing that I would do. Um, but the challenge is like um, a work visa because now I'm still under my student visa. And But if uh, I will stay while I'm waiting for Changguang, I need another visa uh, to keep my status, which will be a work visa. Of course, that's if he study, I can, if I cannot get a work visa, I can still get a spouse visa. But with that visa, I cannot work at all. I have to be stay-home wife. Uh, so then, you know, I wish I don't mind to do, but that's kind of like against you know God's calling. Having worked so hard for almost ten years for this degree, um, but if that's that's God's plan, I'll be I will you know go with it. So, but you know, it's kind of like something that's um, uh, I would invite y'all to pray is. Um, uh, if God's waiting, then got a work visa. So while I'm waiting for Chengguang, I still can fulfill God's calling in my wife, uh, life. Um, but um, uh, and also another option would be going back to China next year if you know Chengguang is not continue. So we will go back to China next year uh, and teaching Bible courses for the uh, for our Bible school in Beijing. Uh, but the challenge and unknowns that uh, we have will be, um, I may not get any student because of COVID and the, the new religious policy. I have been talking with uh, our pastor back back home and asked about the situation there. He said that we currently we had 20 or so students in the Bible school, uh, but they are um, they will be done, you know, soon. So, and they are thinking about to you know, have more students, but they don't know, like, how many we could get, you know, and whether we could get any or not. So, kind of like that's, uh, if, if not, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know, serve a church or, but not teaching. So, it's, or teaching something else rather than biblical languages. So I don't know. Um, and also, we may not be able, I, I may not be uh, able to teach biblical languages, even though we have students. But, uh, you know, they, if the students are pastors, they only come over for a short training, they would pay, you know, watch, get practical training rather than borrowing biblical languages to them. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's kind of quite a challenge for me, and um, I just I think last year, um, right before my graduation, I have been talking with my husband quite for hours because 
the Lord had been here in the States for almost 10 years, got equipped for that calling. And then if I did not get any students, what that for, you know, kind of like a, that's a pretty disappointment to me. But, you know, if Lord said, don't worry, you know, just go back, then I will open door for you. That'd be great too. So I, so now like we have different two options so far, but, um, I wish I could tell like what next step would be for us, but I don't know. Uh, so we're still praying and see which way God leads us to. But uh, when I shared with um, another um, older people, couple in Texas, and she kind of like, God used her words to open my mind. Uh, she said, Linda, even though you, if you stay here for another two or three years, you're still serving Chinese churches because you are, will be teaching Chinese students at Dallas Theological Seminary even though you teach them in a foreign country, but you are serving Chinese churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, that's broadened your ministry, because when you go back to China, you would teach in for your church group, but now you are serving a broader audience, because all these students are from all over China, mm-hmm. so they're from a different churches, and none of them are from our, my church group. So that's uh, just people all over China. So... That's kind of like a, became an encouragement to me, say, yes, even though I'm not returning to China now, but I'm still serving Chinese churches, you know, in Chinese and for Chinese. So that's still carrying on God's vision for the Chinese church. So, but, you know, if we go back to China, we would definitely you know, serve a Chinese church, maybe in a different way. But we still know. Um, so, so we are still praying, and we still have a few months. Um, sometime before November, we'll figure out, um, you know, what God leads us to for next step. But now, like, I, the, even the Dallas Theological Seminary, they still want me to teach uh, Hebrew courses for the Chinese program, even though uh, if I go back to China, they still want me to teach. But that will be through life size. But the... Concern would be if if the Chinese government shut down everything, blocked the website, then I would not have access to mm-hmm. the students here. So we just don't know that's um, you know how that would work out. But for now, still working because I uh, we have a virtual student. I think she's in either in Taiwan or in mainland China right now. So, um, but we're still working with that, uh, but you don't know like, when the, the government may shut down um, that access. So, I think um, it doesn't matter which way God leads us to, uh, we will be serving Chinese churches, Chinese people, and for God's kingdom. Yes. I'm curious, how, how is it that the Chinese students at Dallas Theological have are they, you know, what, we've heard so many stories about how oppressive the government, how is it that they are that to get religious training when those are two things that we have heard here that the government doesn't allow in China? Yeah, the, the government in China doesn't allow people to get theological training, uh, but as, um, the only thing that they get from the government is a passport. So if 
I mean, they don't need to tell the the uh, Chinese government that they are coming to the states to get their logic training. So they they will get a passport passport. But then once that step done, then the getting visa is depends on the United States government. So if they can get a passport from a Chinese, you know, um, organization, then then they got a visa from the United States immigration, so they can come to the states to study. So it's uh, it's not like a straight away from the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, before I end, I would show you this picture. Uh, I this I think one time I sent out this picture in my newsletter. It's three generations of biblical language learner. Dr. Taylor, who was Glenn's great professor back to the 60s in Bob Jones University. And then you can see the date, 2014, January 16th. Uh, Glenn always dreamed that uh, I, uh, he and I would be sitting under Dr. Taylor's class to study subtuagent with him. So that Dream became true in 2014. So we three in the same class studied subtuition with Dr. Taylor. So that's three generations. So, uh, you know, he passed down the baton to Glenn and Glenn passed down the baton to me. Now it's my turn to pass it down the baton to somewhere else. So I don't know. Yeah. So, but, um, you know, that's kind of like um, we uh, carry on the legacy. So fulfill God's vision in our lives. Thank you. We're already a little late, so feel free if anybody needs to leave. But we wanted her to answer any other questions, and we'll just see how it goes. So if anybody just has to go. Connie? Okay. Um, so the, the, the textbook that you did for is there one like in Greek or when you put a Chinese, you know, Greek language, Chinese people in or get on the Chinese? Oh, yeah. Um, I already translated uh, Nate Purser. I think you all know him. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a great uh, textbook uh, into Chinese. But at that moment, we did not really, because we want to get it done pretty soon. And uh, so Glenn, Nate, and I, we worked together to get that. You know, things worked out, but uh, it's not much adaption in that textbook. I think I probably need to talk with Nate to redo that textbook. It's more, have more adaptions. So move out those English stuff mm-hmm. and to put more Chinese in it. So, um, so that's already partially done. So it's in Chinese, but it's not pure adaptions in it. Yeah. So, yeah. But they're learning Hebrew, just doing it, like you say, from the English Hebrew, mm-hmm. like Chinese Hebrew. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely, because, yeah. you know, uh, because language is always overlapping with something, you know, but because God created language for people to speak and understand the world. So even though, you know, you don't, you don't need a second language to the, learn a third or fourth language, you right. can't understand another language from your native language. Mm-hmm. So I think... Because of the in, uh, so many textbooks and uh, uh, reference tools are in English, in English, 
So that's really scared away some students because of the, oh, my English is not good enough, so I'm not qualified to study Greek and Hebrew. No, you don't need any English or another language to study biblical languages. So, yes. Just following up on that, uh, is it not possible that perhaps more Chinese students would be motivated to come to Dallas if they could learn biblical languages yes. from yes. a Chinese professor in mm-hmm. Chinese? Yeah. Now, because the Chinese program at Dallas Theological Seminary Seminary started back 2004, but they at that moment they only have a Master of Arts in Christian Studies. But now they have Master of Arts in Christian Education, Master of Arts in Biblical. They trying to do biblical, but not started. There's another MA I I don't quite remember, but. This year, they just started the Master of Theology for Chinese program. This program requires biblical languages. It's 27 hours of biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew. So it's 27 hours for it's nine courses. So Hebrew is have four, and Greek has five. So I think then because of this new program, that's really motivated lots Chinese, not mainland China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and also Chinese church leaders in North America as well. So because they don't, they kind of like it's a little challenge for them to study a master of theology and study another languages, you know, from with English. So when they when DTS opened, uh, you know, started this new program, Master of Theology in Chinese, now lots of people come back to, you know, after they got their MAs, now they come back for THM. So that's kind of like exciting because they, they were afraid to study uh, languages in English and so not have Chinese, so they, they want to do that. You, you've got a question from okay. Zoom. Okay. Go ahead, Sharon. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I'm just curious about the number of teachers that they have at Dallas to be able to teach what you're teaching now, for example. Mm-hmm. Are, like if you leave, do they have enough people that can teach Hebrew in Hebrew for all these students that are coming? Uh, so far, based on what I know, they don't have another candidate except for me except me so I don't know if I leave that's kind of something they talk about like um, you know we figure out a way that uh, when you go back to China they cannot stop me to go back to China huh? so it's the only thing they we trying to figure out like when I go back to China they still want to find out, find out a way that I can still teach the at Dallas so um, but you know I don't know, in the future, they may find another better candidate or not, but so far, they they just have me. <laughs> so. so far, they're stuck with you. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's no choice. But, you know, sorry for that. Okay, so knowing the restrictions and everything that the government has, the government has the restrictions, how do you get the word out that you've got, you know, DTS now has this wonderful, you know, uh, language program from Chinese to Hebrew, Chinese to wherever, mm-hmm. um, because of the restrictions. Because I know what you were saying is you can apply for the visa just to leave the country, mm-hmm. but then you have to apply for another visa when you get to the States. And you got visa. a pass- passport, for, uh, passport. Yeah, then you can get a visa. 
from the United States. Well, how do you get the word out? I mean, so I mean, they don't have to tell them, you know, they're they're leaving to to study. We just want to leave the country, you know. Uh -huh. Is it? You said you have a Bible school. Is that how kind of you use that to advertise the word out? Me. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. there are lots of um, uh, people. You know, there are some pastors they know about you know the seminars in the states. So I mean they. They just share that with the audience. Just word of mouth, basically. Yeah, yes, okay. true. And also, they, I think they can Google it, right? That's uh, from the website. So, yeah, they can still know if they want to search some uh, seminars in North America. They can. But, uh, but most likely, just word, mouth to mouth, you know, advertising. Isn't, isn't there some, something of a network of the underground church? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, Mm -hmm. People will get the word out. And yes. is there Zoom? Can they use Zoom? Yeah, they can. They can use <clears throat> Zoom. Any more questions? Good questions. Mm -hmm. Any Zoom questions? <laughs> what kind of support do you need? Oh, whether it be prayer support, financial support. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, yes, the financial support and um, prayer support, definitely. Other than that, um, I I think we're we're good. So yeah, and uh, I think uh, Ray mentioned about uh, or Jim also mentioned about like a Midland Bible Church, which uh, became a channel for us to you know get donations. Uh, uh, I mean, they uh, last year they asked me about like how long how long do we still need them to as a channel? Can mm -hmm. I go through? Um, I told them like one more year uh, because. Uh, um, we will be here for at least one more year, you know, this year. So, uh, but if after that, I think I still need to talk with them whether they are still uh, sponsoring us, you know, for that. So. Well, I just want to mention that the information on support that's right now is on that newsletter. And if you if you're not on her newsletter, we can. Yeah, if you want to get in, yeah. that's, uh, yeah. Get a hold of Jim and I, and we'll make sure you get on it. I, I, I dropped the ball. I didn't make a thing for people to fill out. To sign out. <laughs> well, they can email me on those of you that are on my list, and if you sent your list as well. Yeah. I'd be glad to pass on information. Right. We'll get it to her, so just email. Any others? I want to thank Bill. Sure. Yeah, Bill Moni provided the room or made arrangements for us. Those of us that are part of the Zoom group were kind of uh, gypsies, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you go back to China, uh, will you continue to need uh, financial support? Oh, uh, I think yes, um, but um, I haven't talked with our pastor yet about the. Um, you know, whether we can get money, you know, get paid for the ministry or how much we can because we haven't got to that step yet. So we haven't really talked about that further about finance. Uh, but I, I know living in Beijing is, you know, very expensive and I don't know like how much, uh, you know, payment we would get from our church if we teach there. So, but so far I don't know quite like but also, also, if you stay in the states, you're gonna you're gonna need ongoing support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and if she they're here for another two and a half years or whatever, yeah, they're, they're um, going to need ongoing support. Could you say something about how the underground church is faring during this time of increased government surveillance? It's, I know when you were in our home, you talked about how your particular branch of the underground church had gone from eight to over a million in mm-hmm. a few years. But what's happened in recent years? Okay. Do you want to talk about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my husband knows more about uh, those. Uh, so what's the current situation about our church group? because of the COVID and the new religious policy. New restrictions. Okay. Yeah. Government yeah. restrictions. Yeah, maybe, 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 yeah, most of, most of you know, the Chinese government made a new religion policies. Yeah. Um, uh, the Chinese government, yeah, want to, yeah, wants to control two sections. One is about who has uh, one is about who has right, who has right to uh, choose pastor. This is means who is the pastor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Another thing is about yeah Chinese government want to control money from church. Okay. So um, you know China, you know uh, China is very huge. There are a lot of underground churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know, yeah, I know my church groups, yeah, my church groups clearly, uh, at my hometown, my, ch- uh, my church is, uh, separated small group. Divided into small groups. Yeah, divided in small group. Another thing is, because of COVID-19, uh, yeah, Chinese, Chinese local government made, yeah, made a lot of policies. Yeah, to control everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in here, yeah, people have choose to have right to choose if they uh, wear face mask or not. Yeah, but uh, yeah, few a day, uh, few days ago, yeah, few days ago, um, I I read some news from my my hometown province. Yeah, some. Uh, uh, okay. a, f- a few, a few of counties, counties, local government, local governments made made some policies. If people don't get a vaccine, they can. There are some uh, areas they don't have right to go. Okay. So because of COVID nineteen, yeah, for underground church, there are. Some, uh, it's not easy. They can gather together to worship in public. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of like a basic the situation. Like my husband mentioned about the government. Uh, the new policy is like that. So you have to. They ask all the family churches, house churches, or underground churches. It's the same group. You know, just use different terminology. So they ask all of them to be registered under the government. And you have either two choices. And register under the government by controlled by them, or not unregistered, and you lose your freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but but if you register under the government, you lose your freedom. You lose your freedom too. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, because they would, uh, to, they would have uh, authorized the person to ordain 
the pastor for you. And those pastors basically spies. They are not Christians at all. So, and, uh, so, and also they want to control your money. And also they want, then they will, after they control these two things, they basically, you know, reject all those ministry. You cannot share gospel with children under 18. You cannot go, up, you know, to other places to share the gospel, all that. Yep. So, uh, yeah, you would say something? Um, yeah, in Chinese Christians' opinion, uh, Chinese government is not, is not similar to another government. Yeah, Chinese government is a religion group. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, it's common that it's yeah, their yeah. beliefs. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. After Chinese uh, chairman, yeah, Xi Jinping, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Xi Jinping be, uh, became a chairman of Chinese government. Yeah, Chinese government made a lot of policies in order to control people's religion and their mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, most of yeah, most of my church's leaders think, you know, in the past, in the past, uh, both of, both of uh, government church, government church, and other government church uh, was growing so fast, was growing so fast. Okay, uh, in the past, yeah, in the past, most of the pastors talk about the cross. Cross. Yeah, cross. Yeah, they know. Yeah, they know. If they follow Jesus, they need to pay a price. Yeah, even salvation is free. But if people want to want to be, if if people want to be disciple, disciples is not free. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, a few years ago. Yeah, in a few years ago, uh, many of young Christians, yeah, they hear, they hear a lot of stories about the cross in the past, but they don't, but they are not like, they are not like the, the older Christians, yeah, the older Christians. Yeah, most of the church leaders think God want to use these issues to um, purify their church mm-hmm. in order yeah, yeah, to prepare them to preach gospel uh, widely. Yeah. yeah, so this is, yeah, this is most of Chinese church's opinion about yeah, the Chinese, situation. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, we know it's not easy for mm-hmm. both of Government church and underground church. Yeah, but we know God is good. God is always good. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, now, like, uh, because, you know, none of the Chinese uh, house churches yeah. want to be registered under the government, so you so called lose your way, uh, freedom. And so, and uh, but now, like, because of this issue, people cannot gather together as a big group, so you have to divide into small groups. So now we are back to the real house church again. So, you know, just into a smaller groups of meeting at people's home. So in this case, we would need more 
small group leaders. So the pastors is like busy with training more small group leaders and in depth so they can serve their small groups. So that's so far that's the strategy the change house churches, at least for our church groups, are using uh, to continue um, worship. Um, but um, that's definitely reduced the um, the influence of the church as well. Because back then, I mean, for Chinese uh, Christmas is more of church thing in China rather than family holiday. So then during Christmas time, we always have a big evangelizing event. We invite two thousand, you know, thousand people come over to the church. Uh, we have a, a fun program and then, you know, dramas and singing and dancing and to share the gospel with people. But once we divide it into small groups, then we don't have that privilege to do evangelizing in more um, broader group. So that's kind of like a sad thing, but, you know, we're, uh, the government cannot stop us to share gospel individually. So we're still doing that. So... Um, Kind of like this, that's why like um, the new policy influenced the Bible schools because we, you know, now like we don't really have that um, privilege to have more young people to come to the Bible school and uh, and also the government just pay too much attention to you and stop you. So our church group only have, we have um, many Five schools back then, but now only have one. Yeah. So um, the the only one that's still open is in yeah. Beijing, but it's still we just don't know like whether we can how many students we can get and then you know how widely that is true. And is that Bible school run by the government? Is it registered with the government? No, it's the house church. It's either our our group. So I mean, the new religious policy is not just against Christianity; it's yeah. against our religion. In yeah. China, because they want the only one religion yeah. in China is communism. Yeah. So, um, so I have a question about your church. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned your church. Is it uh, registered or not? Not registered. It's not. It's but instead, it's large. Was that the large church that you were talking about having a thousand people come at Christmas time? Was that your church or? Yeah, that's uh, that's the church. Uh, that's our church group. Our church group called Chinese Gospel Church. So uh-huh. we uh, that started in the early eighties. Um, is a one man we called Grandpa in the phone, and he discipled eight men, and then these eight men became natural leaders for our church group. So they start to share gospel village to village, and then. Um, they build up like a, you know, bigger groups, and then they ha- we have more young people. More young people became believer, so they send out these young believers to all over China. So then our church group start have churches all over China right now. So um, that's the church group we both are in. So, so you don't have any local large meetings. The government isn't able to break you up if you're scattered all over the country. Yes, uh, but uh, I mean, there there uh, was a good time for Chinese church. Mm-hmm. Like uh, since 2004 to 2016, basically that's 11 years or 12 years. Child churches had the freedom ever, mm-hmm. so that's like start to like 
uh, how to use to be rural areas. Mm-hmm. But in 2004, uh, because of the persecution, the church leaders went to cities. So they start to settle down in the cities and to build churches in cities. Mm-hmm. And then, then the government really did not give much persecution for that 12 years. So the churches flourished in that 11 years. That's college students and so many people became Christians in the city area, not just like in the villages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, business and, you know, how education and so even governors. So that's really, uh, that's a good time that uh, for the Chinese churches to grow. But then after that, you know, yeah. you know, really more restriction, more restriction, more restriction until to the new new policy. Yeah. So now we we uh, back then when we still had the freedom for Chinese uh, for Christmas, we would uh, uh, rent a theater which can hold two thousand or more people, mm-hmm. and to uh, invite them to yeah. them over to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. But now we cannot do that anymore. So. Well, thank you for coming. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Bill, do you want to close yep. our meeting? Father God, within this testimony shows us nothing's impossible. You desire the Word of God to get in of people all over the world. Thank you for this courage. Mm. Yes. You yes. moving powerfully in China. Mm-hmm. We're just grateful to you. Mm-hmm. Father, I, I ask that you now take this next I ask that you educate many Chinese Christians in biblical language. Mm-hmm. I ask that you now reap a great reward for the kingdom, the training that you've done with Linda. We just ask your hand be on them. We pray if it fits your plans, provide them work, please to stay here and train students. Mm-hmm. You've got other plans to praise you for. We ask you to bring much gain for the kingdom out of the almost ten years together. We just are grateful. Thank you for allowing us this work. This all to you. Thank you all so much. Thank you.